Greetings and welcome to the Composer to Composer podcast with your host, Dee Dee Jackson, that's me. For episode two, I'm excited to present a conversation I had recently with Canadian-born New York-based composer, and also, I should add, music director, lyricist, educator, teacher, and beyond, Alison Layton Brown. I first met Alison when she was a panelist here at an event of the Society of Composers and Lyricists in New York, a really excellent organization that anyone based in L.A. and New York should consider joining and certainly even beyond. We got into a discussion afterwards, and in the process we realized we really had much in common well beyond our Canadian-born background, particularly, I think, maybe our desire to approach our careers with a healthy dose of eclectic variety from project to project versus the more single-minded approach that many others choose to take, which I think we do both as a necessity, perhaps, but also as an extension of our own eclectic tastes. We also both composed for the PBS show Pig Plus Cat among our various projects, and so in this podcast, at one point I also enjoyed diving in with her into the process of composing for this now seven Emmy award-winning show. So let's get started. And I hope you enjoy it. So we are talking here with Alison Layton Brown, who is, uh, well, how would you describe yourself? Well, if, if we want to consult my business card, we'll say composer, musical director, pianist. <laughs> composer, musical director, and pianist. And teacher, I would say, right? And teacher, exactly. This this doesn't make it onto the business card, but it's a part of my life for yeah, sure. Yeah, and that's probably one of the things that we'll talk about as we get going here in terms of the diversity of one's career versus focusing in on, on just one thing. We have actually several things in common, the first being that we're both from Canada, actually, right? Yes, we are. So, in yeah. fact, not too far from each other either, I believe. Well, let's say I grew up in Ottawa, but are you from the, from the Toronto area? I'm trying to remember. Right, so I'm Toronto. Yeah, exactly. Oh, fantastic. From Toronto. Grew up there. Proud to be Canadian during these crazy times. Um, are, you, are you thinking in your back pocket? Could always move back. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Things go bad. Let's just get... <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so I, I grew up playing the piano. You know, I started super young. I was uh, four when I started playing Suzuki piano. Oh, you did Suzuki. And, eh? Interesting. Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I stayed with my piano teacher, Rosemary Blanc, for 17 years. So wow. she was my... My one and only teacher, and she's still a dear friend of mine. That's amazing. And I read somewhere that you, you and I did this too, I was playing with orchestras at a very young age, and I think you, you did too. Yep, I did. Yeah, I performed as a soloist. I mean, I was really entrenched in, in the classical piano world. Yeah. And, and I love to, I mean, to this day, that, that music is kind of the bedrock of my musical understanding of a lot of things. But it was a fantastic 17 years. It was a great time, a lot of hard work, and I performed my own concerts. I did some, some soloing with orchestras and whatnot. And then I, I will say, as a teenager, the decision had to be made, okay, is this going to be my life? Is this classical performing career what I, what I really want? And from about the age of 10, or my parents may say even younger, I had already been writing my own music, so I knew that there was more out there. And by that, I just mean I knew I wanted to diversify what would become a theme for the rest of yes, my life. Yes, yes, I, I, <laughs> I know the feeling, yes. No, and, I, and just I knew there were more sounds out there that I really wanted to get my ears around, as well as my fingers around, and that led me to jazz school. I studied jazz improv as well as composition at Concordia in Montreal. And that was an amazing program, which was actually an interdisciplinary fine arts degree 
which kind of let me design my own course of study. And um, it's a program that no longer exists. I lucked out to, to be there at that time. It was a great time to be at that school. Was Jerry Brown there? I, I seem to have this. She was. Yeah, because yeah. I, I worked with her through Justin Time Records, which was the label I was oh, on that was based in Montreal. So a lot of connections. Well, exactly. As you know, the jazz scene in Montreal is huge, as was the electronic music scene even back then. The program that they had going was electroacoustics was what they called it. So I could dip into some courses there and straight up composition and orchestration courses, as well as honing in on some jazz piano skills, which was just a lot of fun. I started playing in bands. I played in some rock bands and different types of music when I was out there. To this day, a lot of great music friends who still live in Montreal, making a living playing music. And it's an amazing community as I think you know. I mean, definitely. Yeah, I, I had. I, yeah, that's actually yeah. where I first got noticed at the Montreal Jazz Festival, and, really? and I was, you know, played there many times over the years. And they have the, an amazing jazz festival and a, and a great scene. Oh There's yeah, a, no, it's it's an incredible place to live. I, I don't want to backtrack too much, but so when you were doing classical piano, I'm just curious: was there any uh, negative blowback about your burgeoning interest in jazz by anybody, family, or? There was no blowback yet because I kind of kept it under wraps but I think anyone that knew me well including my teacher and I know she really wanted me to go to Juilliard she really wanted me to be in New York she wanted me to pursue a classical career even she knew I was getting really excited by some of the pieces she was throwing at me that were a, a lot more kind of interpretive, expressive, even some of the crossover stuff. I remember playing Rhapsody in Blue, for example, or, or Gershwin Preludes and just Love those, yeah. loving it, you know, and, and she and she gave me more of that stuff. She was not holding me back at all. And, so she could um, see your interest going she, into that she area. Really, she really could. And honestly, it wasn't jazz per se that I was thrilled by. It was the existence of kind of freer musical realms because of course classical music the freedom comes from really playing by the rules first and then letting yourself go within those constraints and, and interpretively exploring but I was interested in writing my own stuff and I wasn't writing classical works at age 12 and 13. I was looking to experiment a little but I will say Rosemary, my teacher, gave me probably the greatest musical gift I've ever been given, which is what I strive to pass on to everyone, whether they're my students or not, which was an understanding from a super young age that music tells stories. Right. And, and, you know, this became not just a thrilling concept for me, but the cornerstone of my whole following decade and more and my career. Because I remember we would take pieces, everything from Moonlight Sonata to Schumann, you know, you name it, and go through and discuss what we felt the storyline could be. And, and and they weren't always linear stories, but we would discuss characters, we would discuss different wow. voices as they emerged, the musical texture. Yeah, and I mean, this was so far out there when I really think about what most piano teachers are teaching. This was so jiving with me and what what turned me on musically. I remember when I went to Concordia and I had that great few years learning a bunch of stuff, I wanted to study playwriting. I wanted to study theater and, and, and other sort of more direct forms of storytelling, which could complement the musical storytelling that was kind of in my heart. So the fact that I'm writing shows and scoring shows and everything I'm doing now is 100% tied to storytelling musically is really no surprise if you were there for my 
developmental years. That's funny. I remember when I was studying with Menachem Pressler at, at Indiana University, classical piano, of course, playing the G minor ballad, and 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 he literally created you know, words to like, would you, la, 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 yes, sir, and this whole kind of thing. And, it, you know, I, I invested in that for a minute, and then I had a miserable experience that we're not going to get into after that and switch to jazz. Uh, but yeah, so I, I, I hear what you're saying. Well, now, <laughs> speaking of musical theater, you started to get into that and study that more formally. Well, right. When I was finishing up my degree in Montreal, I heard about the graduate musical theater writing program, which is at Tisch at NYU. But I remember that I had no burning desire to have, you know, obtain a graduate degree. But I remember that from the minute I read about that program, I thought, my God, this sounds incredible. You know, at the time, 10 composers and 10 playwrights or lyricists were, were selected. And this was an international program. And we would spend two years writing with each other in just different configurations. Wow, that sounds amazing. It is amazing. It truly is an amazing program. Major props go to that program. It's still going strong. Is it still 10 and 10? It's not. It's grown. I'm not sure what the numbers are now, but I know it's, it's surpassed that by a lot. Right. Um, but I love that intimacy. One of my longest collaborators, um, Sophia Chapajev, who's a, a playwright and lyricist, I met her through one of those random pairings mm-hmm. in our first year, and we've written seven shows together since. So, I mean, great people. Uh, yes, I did learn a lot more about musical theater itself about the canon and actually i entered that program as a composer lyricist really so had you been doing a lot of writing uh, word wise up to that point or you know i had done a fair bit but really i guess we'd, we'd call it untrained i remember i had an album that i really don't want anybody to know about but here i am telling you <laughs> let's um, play an excerpt now okay yeah. no. <laughs> Uh, please, God, no. But as a as a folk singer-songwriter, when I was maybe 15, 16 years old, and, and these were just my own songs, uh, angsty, I'm sure. <laughs> and, you know, I wrote my first musical while I was in college, and I remember that was kind of my first lyric writing in a dramatic context experience. The show was called Aquarium, mm-hmm. and uh, I remember it got a couple readings done in Montreal, which was exciting. And I think that material possibly got me uh, into the Tisch program. So you've done, you said you've done seven shows. Are these ones that have been put on anywhere or like, how does that process work for you? Yeah, no, I've, I've written um, dozens at this point of shows, not full length. Oh, all right. So you did seven shows with that particular person and you've done even more since. Right, exactly. With that collaborator, some of which were short, they were short musicals, maybe a one act show or things like that um, that we wrote for, for a festival or for, you know, various reasons. We actually just recently, last year, we, we completed a kind of a triptych of three short pieces entitled Mouth Pieces, mm. um, which the last of which was commissioned by a New Jersey Arts Collective in um, Skyline Theater. And that, yeah, that, that type of thing. Sometimes the shorter pieces, as you can imagine, with musical theater writing are way easier to get on their feet and, and, and just less of a less of a time investment. You know, you could be looking at a decade or something like this yes. for, for shows to get on their feet. Well, I, I know about that. I, did you uh, were you familiar with the Lehman Engel Musical Theater Workshop, or did you have anything to yes. do with that? Because I, I came up through that program. Another another thing in in relative common, I suppose. And and that was always what they told you. They would say that uh, you know be prepared for a musical theater piece to take ten years from inception 
to performance. And in fact, there was a there was a musical recently, Should Have Been You, that I remember, you know, years ago being workshopped in that class and which recently, I think in the last year or so, came and went to Broadway with some of the same pieces that we had given input into and so on. So, yeah, so that's actually maybe a smart, a smart strategy if it was a conscious strategy to, to do mm-hmm. smaller things and feel your way through it. Because, yes, it's a tremendous uh, commitment of time. Well, and as, as you know, um, often there's no money up front at all. Right. So you're writing, you know, in a void, as it were. I mean, if you get accepted to NIMF for like the New York Musical Theater Festival, it really, in a way, it's it suddenly becomes a financial burden, even though it's an honor. Well, that's right, because you're producing your own work. Yeah, it's really it's really something. And major props to, to all those writers out there who keep taking on the big pieces. And I am one. I continue to to write the longer pieces, although the short ones and the bite-sized jobs keep me afloat in the meantime. Right, right, right. So that's, I'm assuming, what got you to New York. And I'm assuming once you got there, you 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 stayed, which was sim- similar to me as well. Is that right? So what year did you come here? Uh, I don't want to date myself. Let's just say the, <laughs> okay, early, no, the early 90s. Uh, or no, actually, 89, okay. actually, I've been here since. Oh, yeah, wow. I was doing my master's degree in jazz at the Manhattan School of Music. And then I just kind of stayed. Or were you able to do it as a Canadian? Did you have like an American in somehow or i do i do i uh i'm a dual citizen i am an american same citizen. as me yes we're and that's we avoided a major headache as many people um, know dealing with that whole visa scenario but yeah i uh, i actually moved one week before 9-11 wow and so i'm approaching my 15 year anniversary in just a couple weeks they say it takes 10 for you to be an actual That's New right. Yorker, so you're right. that and then some. And then some, yeah. So it was a very rocky time to arrive, particularly from another country. And yes, the fact that I stayed, I think, is a testament not just to the amazing people that I met through that program at Tisch, um, because they became a great jumping-off community, community of collaborators, but also the the community here in New York City, which I really, really connected deeply to. I think anyone who lived through 9-11, I mean, not to go on about that, but it, it, it really does bond you to, to this city in a very important way. But I stuck around. I was really doing a lot of writing for dance in my early days, modern dance. I had begun working at the American Dance Festival, which is um, happens down in North Carolina, and I was working as a, a musician, as a pianist, and I would play for, you know, master classes, hours on end, and uh, improvising in rooms with a whole bunch of sweaty dancers. Right, right. I've done and, a bit of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was cool. Actually, it was hot. <laughs> but uh, I ended up meeting some some interesting choreographers through that scene and working with them for the following couple of years. And I also met someone who became another long-term collaborator, Ellen Hemphill, who is the artistic director of Archipelago Theater, which is kind of, again, sort of an interdisciplinary avant-garde theater company based out of North Carolina, but with members kind of scattered across the country. So with for them, uh, I became composer-in-residence, and I went on to write various scores for them all the way up until the present, you know, with the latest project being their first film, just got released last year, yeah, really exciting collaboration. But one of my life experiences, I'm sure you share, is where do the you know the greatest connections and jobs come from? From other connections and other jobs, right? Because these are the people who lead us and the experience that lead us to other potential collaborators. You know, people hear our work, they work with us, they refer us to other people. And I don't feel like it's an accident 
that that dance world led me to them. And Yeah, I remember one of the first conversations we had after a Society of Composers and Lyricists event, which is an organization we both belong to and I'm sure would recommend uh, to, to others as a great thing to do, Absolutely. especially if you're based in New York or L.A., but even beyond potentially. Um, but we were talking about this whole business of, of networking and, and how we make that happen. There was a particular uh, panel, if I recall, and uh, there, yes. there was somebody on the panel um, who ha- was talking about how he you know, goes out of his way to make multiple calls every day. And, and, and I think we were, we were talking about it and wondering, is, is there, I think questioning without really knowing the answer, like, is that too deliberate? At the end of the day, will the connections that you ultimately get be more along the lines of what you've just described? Like they just almost evolve organically by you being out there and, you know, going from that person that you've sort of organically connected with to whomever they recommend you to over time? Or does one need to very proactively, literally cold call, and in many cases, people that you may not really know very well and just get the word out in that way? I'll speak, you know, to my own experiences, which... I do not do that. Um, I haven't thus far. Should I be doing that? I, I mean, I scratch my head. Maybe. Right. So just making the cold calls like, and deliberately trying to do a certain number every day or whatever. You know, I, I don't necessarily have that, that in me, even at events that are clearly intended for networking purposes. I, I often find myself kind of, I won't say off the side, but chatting with people in a non-networking capacity because... I don't. I don't really feel comfortable comfortable in a forced networking scenario. Now, once in a while, if you're not working as much as you would like, you know, you need to reach out more aggressively. And I know that's absolutely a part of our lives. When we have to drum up work, we have to do the legwork of reaching out to people. I've been. I, I think I've just been very fortunate that really since I set foot here in New York, I've been. I've been working nonstop. And one thing has led to another. You know, I remember in the early days, I said yes to virtually everything. Right, which is good advice, right, if you're just starting out? I guess so, right. I mean, I I really do advocate that because you never know what you're going to enjoy. You never know what skills you might pick up and experiences that you might learn from. Um, If you have the energy, go for it. Even if it's not like some big lucrative thing or I know there's the issue of do you do things for free, even if you're an aspiring film composer? I definitely side with the yes, absolutely. If you can if you can afford to do that and you're making money some other way. yes. Yes. I wrote for free many times and gradually learning to say no or having some some boundaries set is, I think, part of the learning experience of being a freelancer, part of being an artist, quite frankly, um, as you refine um, your own craft, your own focus it becomes more clear. But I'm still open to opportunities even now that I don't, that I didn't necessarily anticipate. Yes. And those long-term collaborations really feed me on a, on a deep level. So I can afford to take the creative risks in other areas. I still feel like there's a foundation there. Well, do you think this attitude, which I share, certainly, everything yeah. you just described, but do you think in your case, this comes out of your general open-mindedness in terms of what you're actually doing anyway, but since you have so many different hats, while at that panel, I think the other thing that had come up was, you know, you should define yourself. Like well, there was a promotion person yes, who was saying, you, you must yeah. define yourself as, if you if your thing is, you know, ambient, you know, whatever, yes. film scores and <laughs> horror for horror movies, then that you then should let people know. And, and we yeah. were saying, man, that is like the, the kiss of death on a creative level to be pigeonholed for the rest of your life doing one thing. So does it speak also to your own general desire to kind of branch out and be open-minded? And- I really think so. I mean, I, I remember I, I was sort of asked to speak on that panel and on behalf half of the composers in the room and I yes. kind of felt well, that's right you were on the panel I almost forgot <laughs> yes 
to speak. Well, I mean, I really let those guys speak their piece before I said, listen, you know, I don't necessarily subscribe to a lot of what's been said here today. But the reason is diversity and, and variety are what stimulate me as a composer. Right, and myself as well, um, yeah. And, and, you know, I just would not look forward to waking up every day if I was writing the same type of music. I'm interested in a whole bunch of things. There are things that I'm not yet great at that I want to get better at. Does that thin out uh, or dilute my skills in any, any one genre or area? I don't think so. I think often the jobs that I, that I end up getting are ones that make use of that versatility yes. and ones that kind of need somebody who can jump across stylistic lines and, and, and pull from different areas. And I get it. I might not be your, your person if you want the top ambient horror <laughs> film star, you know, electronic, whatever. That's not me. However, as you know, a lot of films, a lot of TV shows don't sit in one sonic genre, one musical genre. Right. Um, and so I found it really useful to be able to to be able to mix it up. I wonder, too, if that uh, attitude that we heard on the panel, and again, not necessarily taking anything away from it. There might be some legitimacy for, for people who are, yeah. you know, they, they really are into finding that one thing that they do well and really pushing it. Uh, but I wonder if it's also like a, a Hollywood, like a West Coast versus East Coast mentality, not to overly generalize either. Yeah, and that's actually really interesting because I think, I think there's truth to that. Um, obviously, there are a lot more film and TV composers living in L.A. than there are in New York. The vast majority, probably. Doing dramatic television and film, at least. Sure. And, you and, and you know, you need to differentiate yourself from the next guy or gal. Right. Um, having a specialty makes it easier to, to narrow down your little soundbite of what is it that you're great at. Yes. So there could be legitimacy if you're living out there. But here, it's a whole different ballgame, really. It's more of a necessity to be diverse, if only because 99% of the, the dramatic film scoring and TV jobs are based in L.A. I mean, that's yeah. where a lot of the action is. So over here, almost by default, even if you weren't inclined in that area, you, you have to find different ways to do things. So it works well if you're the way you are. Because, And I'm a jazz musician as well. So, I mean, obviously, this is the center of jazz in many ways, or a certain type of acoustic jazz, New York-based jazz. So there's opportunities there as well. well definitely. And, and listen, there... There's a small, very small part of me that is envious of the person that has kind of one predominant strength because it is a little easier to sell yourself. And there is an aspect of selling oneself in this industry to get gain more notoriety yes. or what have you. Um, but I think we, we've chatted about this in the past, too, is that it could be how I was raised. It could be. Just Maybe it's a Canadian thing. Hey, I wasn't might be anything, <laughs> but we're too polite. I am not overly thrilled by the idea of, of fame and, and notoriety. I am not really enticed by that. I'm enticed by the joy and the energy I get from these collaborations that I have. I'm excited to reach different audiences. I'm excited to do what I love and impart some wisdom on others. It might sound kind of lofty, but I honestly mean that. I'm not, you know, if I can pay my bills comfortably, which I'm lucky to say that I can at this point, yes. I want to be able to continue to do that. And that's really all I want and need, as well as let's lift each other up so that we can, more of us can be doing what we love. And honestly, we can collaborate as fellow artists and, and, and share wisdom and experience, you know? Just like one could compare maybe a visual artist who, you know, works on an ad campaign uh, one day and, right. you know, works, paints a mural at, on a, a wall of a community center the next day and, 
on the third day goes home and, and works in his studio on a personal pottery project. Right. These experiences make up who he is right. um, and what his life consists of. And, and I kind of live that way as well, where, you know, not every day am I, am I shouting from the rooftops exactly, you know, what my soul wants to express. But if there was no element of that soul expression in my life, I would be kind of barren creatively. On the other hand, sometimes when I do write for a commercial television project where I don't feel emotionally connected or I don't feel stimulated kind of personally, I can become stimulated compositionally or by some challenge, musical challenge that involves me learning. Like new new piece of hardware even or something. Yeah, yeah oh, absolutely. Exactly. Taking on a technical challenge or you know, rising to, to different tasks that might be perhaps more external or technical. But yeah, I mean, these things work in tandem. And again, I think that speaks to the my desire to keep mixing it up. And you teach as well. I mean, I know for a lot of people that that has been one way to kind of even just pay the bills when other things are, are, are yep. slow and so on. Uh, I mean, I remember early in my career vowing in a way to to not overly do any potential gig if it was sucking the very creativity from me. Like I remember wedding yeah. gigs in particular. Ironically, I'm, I'm play, oh, yeah. ironically I have a friend who just asked me to play at his wedding next month. But that, with rare exceptions, I, I friend, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember one gig playing for what I thought was an hour, and I looked up and it was like five minutes had gone by, and I was like, oh boy, I, this is. Oh, God. So yeah. you know, I, I tried to avoid that and find things that um, maybe might be only tangentially related to live performance, but I could enjoy doing it with a different part of the brain so that when I was doing the creative thing, I could really go into it uh, uh, full force. So that's probably part of the, the solution too, right? To find something that helps pay the bills. And No, that's it. And, and what you said was a different part of the brain. Yes. And I think to me, that's exactly what it's about is, you know, I've grown to love my teaching and my students. Do you have like a lot of uh, a lot of them now, or I, I know it's private I, now. Right? I have quite a few. Yeah, I've you, I've gone private. I've privatized. Because you were teaching at Tisch uh, for a while, I think, right? I did. I taught at NYU for um for nine years, and uh, actually worked at one of the theater schools there. So I was working with performers, and that was kind of a real window into into how they work and how they think and all mm -hmm. that. And I loved I loved much of that, but I didn't love the classroom setting. Mm. And I never have. I really love one-on-one -on -one yes. work and one-on-one -on -one collaboration and one-on-one. -on -one. I feel like I can really support and get into the mind of whoever that student is right. if, if they feel really safe and if they feel they can they can really trust and explore with me. And, that, and that's what the one-on-one -on -one format is, is ideal for. So, and, yeah. and vocal, piano, composition, the different categories of students and all of that. Yep, different ages, different categories, um, children all the way up. So it's, it's a blast. And, and I agree with you. It's, the balance is, cr is crucial. I would never want the sheer number of hours I spend teaching to eclipse anything else. I need to really be very protective of my creative mental space and that involves not overbooking my weeks uh it involves not trying to be in too many places physically you know look i am still learning how to strike that balance and i think i will continue to learn till the day i die but it's it's tough you know occasionally deadlines emerge and then your focus goes t towards that project other times yes. you might get overloaded in this area or that area but I, I do love the change of pace. Also, as composers, we spend so much time alone in our yes. studios. I'm a people person. You know, I like the alone time. I'm very concentrated when I am by myself. But I like to talk to people and I want to be with people. So when I have students come, I'm excited to see them. The energy 
and get into their head for for an hour before I go back to mine. Yeah, no, I hear you. And I was actually, uh, speaking of teaching, I was doing Harlem School of the Arts for four years and really diving in. But it got to the point where it was getting oppressive in terms of the, just the time commitment. And and so just like you're saying, I, I, I decided I wanted to spend more time with my family. And, and now I'm just sort of teaching at Hunter College part-time and going in once a week or so. And, and it's sort of the right mix uh, for me as well. I love that. Yeah. And I, I, another thing you brought up a second ago is also the, the role of playing or performing in one's life, which... I've kept that as kind of the third piece of the Venn diagram, which is I've never stopped playing the piano. I've never wanted to stop playing out. When I first moved to the city and I was in school, I took kind of a few years off, meaning I really just went into composer mode yes. and um, I didn't play. And sure enough, I started to go crazy. I needed to play. I was itching to get back out there. I formed my own group because I thought, look, I'm not waiting around for someone else to ask me and um lo and behold you know that kind of spawned various other performing projects and it's a it's a great energy release it's another form of collaboration i love uh, the band i play with now we we just have a blast every time we play it's kind of a celebration what, what kind of music would you describe it as being this band uh which is called smith and ninth ward it's an it's a new orleans project cool. um new orleans jazz and kind of funk and and some originals thrown in there and a lot of traditional stuff too just great kind of brass band tradition stuff Mm -hmm. i play keys and sing in that uh group but yeah it's super celebratory and um get to improvise get to wing it yeah definitely it took me i know personally uh, a while to reconcile the mainly two careers that i was leading other than doing some teaching you know i was doing not only jazz but more avant-garde oriented jazz and then here i am branching into writing which a large part of it for a while has been children's composing and I really felt like there was this weird kind of wall. I even had two separate websites. I almost didn't want one group of followers to know what the, you know. And o- only recently that I realized, well, actually, this is, I'm hoping at least an asset to be d- diverse. I merged my website into one and it's all who I am, right? And, and I see your website is the same way. You do all sorts of things. And it's all, all, it's all on there and it's all part of what makes you who you are. It's all on there. And, and you know, you bring up the website and I remember just the, the process of designing that site with uh, the great designer yes. uh, I worked with was really a learning experience for me because I had to come up with how do I clearly define myself in all these various ways that do yes. overlap when I have a client or potential collaborator or employer who needs to know, listen, I want to to hire Allison to score this documentary film set in Vietnam. You know, how can I quickly bring those people to what they want to know in that one area? And and, and someone else saying, oh, I want to take lessons from her. And somebody else saying, oh, I want her to score this cartoon. It's all good. And yet, how, do, how does one clearly direct those different streams that was a, yeah, yeah. that was a challenge. Yeah, it's an ongoing one for me, but I, I think it's, a, it's something you got to do, you know, because that's all who you are. I, I I still haven't added the education wing or the educational component to the site, but at least the jazz thing is in yes. there and the, the composing. I, I want to play some of your examples, but I wanted to. I, I have to ask you about Pig Plus Cat since that's one of the things that we both uh, have oh, a, yes. you know, experience doing, uh, and just maybe more broadly first, how you got involved in um, children's music uh, as one of the many things that you do. Yes. Well, it's really been an interesting turn that uh, that my life has taken the last year or so. And I say, you know, I remain you open know, because yeah. you never know what's 
coming at you. And this was now when I look back, I say, this makes perfect sense. And it's dead obvious that I would be doing this at some point. But at the time, I remember laughing. I can't believe if, if, I, if somebody was filming me right now, what I'm doing, speaking <laughs> these funny voices and singing and recording, you know, it, it just seems Because by the way, that is first. one of the things. And first of all, yeah, yeah, as we <laughs> oh, should mention that to do. people who don't know the show, <laughs> Peck Plus Cat is now seven Emmy Award winning show. Uh, in, but one of the things uh, that you have to do as part of the show, uh, well, maybe, maybe you can describe all of the hats just with this one show that you have to wear. It's really, yes, this job is a perfect example of we as composers need to wear different hats or we simply wouldn't even be up for the job. We score the episodes often wall to wall, incidental score. Um, we're also writing songs which take place. Yeah, at least two or three episodes. songs per episode. Although we're not writing lyrics, those and, are. Or, or words in general, yeah. But um, but one of the wackier sides of the job is that we we create these demos which are exactly timed to to the second for the duration right. of the episode without any visuals yet. No visuals. We're just working from a script. Um, however, in order to, to to time that out perfectly, we also need to to vocally record all of the parts, which means not just the singing, the song parts, and the songs. But all of the dialogue. That's right. <laughs> so you're acting all of the characters. I, I do the same thing. That's it's right. hilarious. Acting notes from the producers. No, it's fantastic. And of course, the, the end result sometimes, and I think this definitely has happened with you, is they get the equivalent of demo envy. Or they fall in love with whatever you did in a particular voice, and then you start getting hired to do vocal, actual vocal work. I, I was called in once. It was funny. My one experience being asked to actually record was for an episode that I, I've now found out from J. Walter Hawks, you know, who's the music director on Peck Plus Cat, that it was never aired. It was for the Wonder Pets, and they wanted me to be the genie. And I had like laryngitis literally the week before. And so I couldn't hit like a high C or some relatively low note. And it, it was like the, the, the biggest disaster of my life uh, in terms of potential future as a voiceover artist, which I never wanted anyway. So it was all good. And we have to do, you know, you do you do virtual instruments, you do a whole mock-up. They replace some of it with live instruments, which is one of the, the, the great things about this show, as well as uh, in a sense, yes. a, a predecessor with a lot of the same people behind it, the Wonder Pets, you know, where they had a full orchestra mixed in with some MIDI. There are very few shows on television, really, not just children's television, certainly, that ever uses acoustic instruments for budgetary reasons, but they really... You can really hear the difference. I, I have um, to say, I, I'm always impressed. So am I. And, and you know, they, they definitely don't dumb it down for a, a young audience um, at all, musically or, or otherwise. Yes. And, and that's one of the exciting things about the show. Let's not forget, we also score. Uh, we create the, all the The scores. actual physical charts. <laughs> like, we create the, the parts and the, the, oh, the yeah, score. Oh, that's another hat. Yeah. And what is this third eater? A thermometer is a stick that measures the temperature, how hot or cold things are. Watch. When it's icy and snowing, a strong wind is blowing. This sign comes down because it's cold outside. How can you tell what the temperature is? A thermometer is your guide. When it's sunny. So much sun. This line comes up because it's hot outside. And I can tell what the temperature is. A thermometer is your guide. Check the thermometer. You know you gotta check When you need to know if it's cold or hot. Do you need a sweater? Or do you not? It's what can't be denied. Just take a sec to look and check. A thermometer is your guide. Let me ask you a couple of questions about that. I'm very curious. Uh, 
in terms of just the compositional process. I mean, one of the things I know I've experienced with them is uh, they'll often have either a, a piece or a lyrical structure of an existing piece, anywhere from that specificity to something a little bit more general, like a general sort of stylistic approach in mind. And sometimes occasionally no you know particular approach whatsoever in mind. Uh, so with this piece, was it, did they sort of say, oh, it should be based upon such and such or? Yeah, in this one, no, uh, it was one of those open-ended ones. So you just came up with that vibe? Yeah, and I and I, I, I threw this one at you because it was actually the very first one I wrote for that really? wow. um, first episode. And, uh, you know, that first episode was had a steep learning curve for me. It was the, the first kids TV score I had ever written. Wow. Well, that's an auspicious beginning then, I would say. It was fun. Yeah, no, thanks. And it was it was very fun. It was, I would say, a lot kind of more frantically paced than what uh, 95% of my work typically is. Not, I don't mean tempo. I mean, you know, just kind of flipping from one sound to another throughout the episode. Right. Relentlessly, I mean, there is right? a template. I mean, there's going to be four usually actual instruments, some of whom might be, uh, you know, multi players, like multi woodwind players. Yes. So there's yes. a certain sound, but then you can add other stuff. In fact, was that you on piano, I'm assuming, or no? Yes, yeah. But yeah, just a lot of fun. And I, and I remember for that one, I thought, geez, I could spring anywhere with this. Um, but what I did know from the script was who was, you know, what character was going to be singing it, who's this little kid, Ramon. And I looked into what he had previously kind of sung. Right. And a lot of his stuff was jazzier, a little more soulful. That's and right. I thought, all right, let's go in this direction and kind of groove it up a little. And I just thought a little groovy tune about about hot and cold kind of makes sense. Did you did you change uh, because as you said before, we we get the lyrics essentially they're pre-written by whoever writes the story. Yes. Um, so did you end up having to change anything? Uh, like what about the background vocals? Was that written in there or did you did you add that? Yeah, I, you know that's I did add that. Um, yeah, but I remember this one being pretty bulletproof as a lyric and um, really easy to set. Right. Uh, the the background vocals were definitely added, um, but yeah, little fun flair, you know, touch touches here and there um, are always welcomes. Um, and certainly on some other episodes, I know what you mean, where there there's kind of a stylistic thrust or even well, even bordering, if not outright, being a, a deliberate parody of existing songs. Well, yeah. right, I did they do in a lot fact, of that one too. One of my favorite ones that I that I've scored was was in this last season that hasn't aired yet, an episode called The Compost Problem. Mm -hmm. Very exciting. And <laughs> uh, and there's a, a hilarious song in the middle, which is a grunge music parody, right. a Nirvana parody, because they're talking about, you know, stinky banana peels and whatever. <laughs> yeah. And there's literally a Smells Like Teen Spirit parody, right. you know, which really cracked me up. It's a challenge too, because you can't, you don't want to get too close to the original if it's right. especially based on the same lyrical scansion as the original. And so I know yes. and they, they well, go there a lot. They go there and they also will give you uh, the read through by the, it, with the original lyrics uh, melody. Yes. With, and with the, yes, that's right. <laughs> and which is really, that, that one was really hard for me to break free from, but I ended up, I ended up getting a huge, out of that episode. Yeah, it's fun. But again, not every song is like that. Sometimes, as you say, like with this song we just played, you, you get free reign. Yeah, I did, I did yeah. one called The 70s Problem, which was the sequel to The 60s Problem that somebody else wrote. Nice. And uh, same idea. I think there might have been like 10 or 15 actual 70s song uh, 
parodies in there. But let me play another one, something completely different. I was really enjoying uh, this tune, Luck Ran Out, and I'm very curious about it too because it reminds me almost like of a Leonard Cohen thing. And of course, he's a, oh, cool. he's a Canadian, isn't he? Yes. Fellow, Fellow Canadian. Canadian. Yeah. It had that kind of, I could almost imagine him singing that. So let me just play uh, some nice. of this first and then we can come back and talk. Well, what was this for? I'm just curious. Yeah, so this is another uh, a recent excerpt for you. Um, just from this past spring, um, I was commissioned to score a play, uh, a production at, at Duke University of a, a great comedic play called Bob, A Life in Five Acts. Mm. Uh, just kind of a birth-to-death road trip, one man's life on the road, wacky characters and in, in, in existence. Anyhow... But um, I, I worked with Ellen Hemphill, who is the Archipelago director I, I spoke about earlier, mm-hmm. and she kind of gave me free reign to, to write songs as well as score this, this play. And in the script itself, in the, in the act breaks, breaks between these five acts, it'll, it'll indicate, you know, a song about hope <laughs> or a song about luck, right? right? So this was a song about luck. I mean, I believe this actually was the end of the first half. But yeah, these these songs. So it ended up being kind of a concept album that I composed loosely based on the play, mm-hmm. but really kind of standalone songs. Did, did you do the lyrics as well? Or? Yes, I wrote oh, the lyrics. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, that's great. And, and, and this one features a, a good friend, the Reverend John Delore on vocals, who I think is perfect for it are you are you singing backgrounds or anything like that or playing the piano i presume i was yeah i was playing piano as well as singing on that as well that's fantastic so this is another tune of yours called jagged
So Jagged, uh, tell me a little bit about this tune. What what was this written for? I'm just curious. Yeah, so this was written as a as an incidental score, a piece of incidental score to accompany a production of Ibsen's The Dollhouse. Wow. Uh, at Doll's House, excuse me. And and the design for the production was kind of a real film noir aesthetic. So I conceived the score um, as a little chamber ensemble for piano, bass, woodwinds, and theremin. Ah, that might have been my question initially. Was that truly a theremin? Yes. It really was. So it, it was a, one of the scores I'm, I'm kind of the most proud of to this day because I think it really hangs together as a score and is really um, interesting on its own, you know. But um, it definitely played an important role in the aesthetic of the production. And it was a, a live score. When you say live, you mean all uh, acoustic or it was recorded live? It was uh, all acoustic. Fantastic. And uh, that was one question I meant to ask you, uh, the degree to which you incorporate and, and have become presumably quite adept, I would imagine, at using virtual instruments. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, do you have the same J. Walter Hawks understandable philosophy of all acoustic whenever possible and then dial in whatever else you need? Or... Uh, are you yeah. called upon to use a lot of things where it's like completely virtual? Absolutely, and you know, live is is always best. Um, are you capable? Are you able to record live? You know, where you work or where you record normally at home, etc. Yes and no. I record uh, individual instruments here. Um, I don't have the capability to record groups here. Right. I'll work in in a bigger studio for that. Yeah. And let's quickly talk about this Hamilton podcast. The first podcast I've scored, it was um, a really fun job. How, how did you get this job? I, I'm curious. You know, I, in fact, R- Reverend John Delore, who I mentioned earlier, another friend and, and collaborator, mm-hmm. works for Midroll, a podcast company, and had asked me to to work with him on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, he said, "Hey, do you do you know Hamilton?" I said, "Well, no. the answer is always yes. If it's, the answer is yes, yes. And, and know it, yes. Do I know the score inside and out? Absolutely not. And I remember I had about three days right. to learn and really absorb the entire score because I really I wanted to not just reference it, but I wanted to be writing as closely in the in you know his style as possible. Right. So yeah, it was a blast. Um, the podcast just aired the first. Oh, it did. I haven't even checked it out. Episode yesterday. Yeah. And what what is the name of the podcast again? It's called the room where it's happening. Appropriately enough for those who know Hamilton, a really kind of fascinating podcast discussing the ins and outs of the material and the source material and, you know, various songs in depth and should be really interesting. That's amazing. So let's summarize here. You have had a tremendously diverse, multifaceted career. We've covered a lot of that. We've also talked about the the networking and the whole issue of do you insincerely randomly cold call people or, or does it evolve more organically from the natural connections that you make in life? And I think that you are maybe more in that latter category. Do you keep up with people on any level for the purpose of it leading to something? Or is it just that you are a people person, you connect with people organically? 
anyway. Like you'll just call people up. You know what I mean? Because there's this yeah, there's this yeah. feeling sometimes that you're just hustling for a gig. There's there still has to be some way in which things happen for you. And I'm just curious how they've evolved if you look at it. No, it's 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 a great question, and I'm sure there will come a day when I when I cold call some people and say, hey, look, you know, check out my reel or you know all those normal things, which. I certainly don't frown upon anyone doing that. Um, whether I've been lucky enough to get away without that or whether it's just not my comfort zone, I mean, remains to be seen. But yeah, I prefer to cultivate connections with people because I genuinely want to and I genuinely, genuinely want to work with them. Whether there's a big paycheck attached or not, whether there's fame and notoriety attached or not, Final example I'll give you is a project that I'm kind of excited to, to be embarking on, haven't even written a note yet, which is a new show I'm collaborating with a, a playwright, Aaron Mark, on, mm-hmm. and it's pretty top secret other than that. But um, but he's a guy who I, I literally got to know through a friend who had performed some of his work. I thought, man, I love this guy's writing. I'd love to just be his friend, honestly, and talk about life, uh, get together. And, and we honestly, we started doing that. We started talking about life. We started meeting regularly. We both found each other's brains interesting. We both kind of jived with each other's artistic aesthetic. And, you know, one day we kind of went, hey, look, do we want to write a piece together? Yeah. Huh. What do we want to write about? And then, you know, that conversation went on for a few more weeks until we had some concrete ideas. But this is an example no one's paying us a dime, you know, yet. Right. Nobody even knows about this except for you guys now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm excited to work with him, period. So. And you didn't reach out I, with him thinking immediately, oh, I'm trying to hustle you for a gig. It was no. more just like, you are really interesting. I'm a person Absolutely. musically. I'm sincerely interested in what you do. Let's just, you know, hang mm-hmm. out and shoot the, you know what, and see what happens. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, the fact that I do have teaching work, the fact that I do have other stable work and regular gigs does afford me the luxury to sort of say, hey, I want to scope out a potential collaboration with no strings attached. You know, and and hard times hit all of us and sometimes we got to more aggressively knock on doors to to get jobs and, yes. and that's part of part of the picture too. Yeah, yeah. So uh, maybe the lesson from this is, in conclusion, the idea of having it come from some sort of place of sincerity. I mean, I used to I, I used to write a column uh, for Downbeat magazine for several years called Living Jazz, and I would give advice in that column. And that was always one of the things that I would say that you know you have to be willing to make yourself a little vulnerable, approach people who you sincerely are interested in, not people that you're just trying to hustle for a gig. A new term I keep using for some inexplicable reason, and not necessarily because you're um, you know you have anything particular in mind, but you just feel like, well, this is a very interesting person and more often than not one would hope uh, or even if not more often than not if even on occasion it leads to something interesting well you know more power to you um, but you also have to be in a position to do that as you also have just pointed out and sometimes it's useful to have other ways to make a living until you get to the point where you're able to to, to reach out in these different ways perhaps uh, as long as those other ways are also compelling to you in some way like teaching or doing something tangentially related to music oh, absolutely it's incredibly well put dd i completely echo everything you just said and and i do think if it's whatever you're doing if it's coming from a genuine place of i like this i love this i'm interested in this yes. you cannot go wrong with that steering your ship you know yeah, and trying to put yourself into a position where you 
you, as you say, have almost the luxury to be able to do that. Because as you say, there's a certain desperation where they're just hustling, hustling, hustling. And it's that way often in the jazz world sometimes too. But if you can put yourself into a position where you can reach out in a sincere way to people, they also, I think, will will see that sincerity in you and, and realize you're not just trying to pitch them or just try to hustle them in some way. Well, fantastic. Well, one final thing, just let people out there know where you can be reached. Oh, sure. Well, yeah, if you're interested in, uh, here's my pitch right now. Do it. No, uh, my genuine she's doing it with all sincerity. <laughs> she's not trying to, you know, um, get anything no, in particular. Don't try to work with me. Just That's kidding. Right. Um, no, I'd be, I'd be thrilled to hear from anyone, um, particularly if you were inspired by anything you hear or see on, on my site, which is www.allison. A-L-L-I-S-O-N, Leighton Brown, L-E-Y-T-O-N-B-R-O-W-N.com, AllisonLeightonBrown.com. That's me. Um, yes. Thank you very much. This is so welcome. This was a blast. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of we fun for me We could go on too. for days. We could totally go on, and I'm sure we'll we'll <laughs> run into each other at another Society of Composers and Lyrists event, etc., and and perhaps yep, yep. have uh, continued the discussion. Uh, to be continued. Yeah, maybe we'll uh, come back in the future for part two. Love that. That's today's show. Please be sure to see the show comments for links to things that we've discussed. And also, if you enjoyed the show, please like us on iTunes and generally spread the word. And also feel free to email me at dd at ddjackson.com. That's just the letter D, letter D at ddjackson, all one word, dot com, with any comments or suggestions. You can also visit my website at ddjackson.com for more info on my own activities. Finally, since I have the PBS show Pig Plus Cat on the mind, let me close out the show with one of my own pig tunes for which I composed the music. You can count on me, it's called. Until then, this is Dee Dee Jackson's Composer to Composer podcast edition number two, and I look forward to talking to you further soon. Take care. If I'm going for a sail, and I'm swallowed by a whale, in trouble I'll be there on the double if you're feeling blue I'm the one two three for you you can count on